City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Performance Seventh year coming to you from the new graduate center of the City University of New York. These seminars provide a keen insight into what it's like to be professional working in the theater. Today's seminar is devoted to performers. We will learn something about how and perhaps why they chose to be performers, their work ethic, and why they work in the theater. I know that you will enjoy and learn from today's panel. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theatre Wing. So now, let me introduce our moderator for the seminar, distinguished playwright Peter Stone. Peter. I'm uh, delighted to be uh, a part of today. Um, playwrights don't get to formally uh, discuss things with, uh, with uh, actors, and I, uh, I promised uh, Isabel uh, and Roy that I won't <laughs> ask to get into too many controversial subjects, although uh, we'll, we'll set the ball rolling. It's, we have six very, Isabel used the word professional, six of the most professional actors one is um, apt to run into in New York, all of them very currently and well employed. Uh, and uh, it's going to be interesting to discuss because they are also vastly different from one another. Adam Pascal is now playing Radam in, in, in Aida, and uh, he has uh, done uh, Rent both in New York and in London. Uh, Tanya, who is now doing Wild Party 2. What do we call it? Wild Party. Wild Just Party. Wild Party. It's the excellent <laughs> Wild Party. And uh, we know her from Jelly's Last Chair. Uh, John, we know from everything. He has been in every, every form and medium. I, I wouldn't be surprised if you were a stilt walker uh, at one point. He's now off Broadway in a play called The Director. Jerry Jones needs no uh, identification, nor Patrick, uh, but uh, both she's as, as successful a stage uh, uh, actress as there is in the New York theater, currently now in the O'Neill Moon for the Misbegotten, and her performance in... Uh, to choose just one, which won every prize they offer uh, in the heiress, was, uh, is a legend. Patrick Stewart is known uh, perhaps the widest because little children know him. <laughs> <laughs> they know him twice. They know him because he's constantly on their television sets, but they also know him because of his one-man uh, production of uh, appearance in The Christmas Carol. He is currently doing Arthur Miller's latest play, uh, Walk Down Mount Morgan, and, um, and he is where he has gotten remarkable reviews. And finally, Jennifer Ely, uh, least known in America, uh, a very temporary condition. Uh, her performance in the Tom Stoppard revival, I hate the word revival, it's like it's been dead. It's not dead. It's a reproduction of, Tom, of uh, 
Tom Stoppard's the real thing, and uh, she has received uh, justifiably uh, raves. And she's a, a beautiful and, and, and uh, <laughs> remarkable actress, and uh, we uh, welcome her here and hope she stays. So here we are, and, and, and we're going to start to talk about something. One of the things I think that everybody is always curious about, especially anyone who has ever tried to act in school or, or in amateur productions or whatever, there's something that actors do which is very difficult for other people to understand, normal people, uh, to understand. And that is, how do you sublimate self? How, how do you literally drive yourself out of your insides and invite in the part you're playing? How much, how hard is that? And how happy is that, is what I'd like to start uh, to do. Let me start with people who've been doing it longer, uh, than some of the others, uh, and, then, and then get around. <laughs> that's why I turned to Adam. Very. <laughs> well, why don't we just go in order? I think that's the fairest way to do it. Uh, Adam, you're doing musicals more than, than the rest of us, although Tanya also does, uh, does musicals. Uh, what is the process for negating self? Is that a fair way to put it, or sure. isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's, I would equate it to sort of taking off your clothes. And, and for me, the longer I do a show, the more layers of clothing I'm able to take off. My intention is to be able to take it all off at once, but I can't do that. I'm just not capable of doing that. I need, I need the, the experience of an extended run. I need years and years. No, I, I, I do, but I, I need lots of performances and lots of work to be able to take those layers off. Um, so. You know, for me, it's, it's, it's just about the, the continual process of doing it night after night and be able, being able to expose myself just a little bit more, and making that performance just a little bit realer, bringing this character a little bit more to life and making him less like me and more like himself. Tanya, and, uh, how much of you is, now is Kate and how much of you is Tanya? Is, does Tanya go, is Kate it, while those two hours are up there on the stage? My process is probably the opposite of his process. Um, I think of it more as living truthfully in imaginary circumstances. So I don't try to get rid of Tanya. I might try to make Tanya more than Tanya is in her own life in the process of, of creating a character. But I sort of begin the work by looking at a script and imagining it as I would want the greatest actor of all time to do it. And then over the course of rehearsals, taking chances, risking falling on my face, and trying to get myself to reach to places that maybe I couldn't do it in my life at all. If, but if the character has to do that, then I have to do that there. So in that sense, I don't think I negate myself. I actually expand myself through the work that I do. John, you've done so many, you've appeared in, in, so in, in all of the media, really. You've done a tremendous amount of television and film and stage and God knows what else. What I want to know is, how, what, how is it different? How is becoming the character, how would you define the difference between doing it in front of a camera where you are sometimes out of context, where you are, where you are some, where the, where the people around you are all technical and are all staring in at you under lights, and you have to get a kind of a jump start on each time they call camera, as opposed to, to, to finding that character on, on the stage. I had to think about this some time ago, Peter. <clears throat> so this isn't a glib answer. I've thought about it for a long time. And, the, and I, it boils down to this kind of uh, 
metaphor for me that working, uh, working for film is like oil painting because uh, every take and every gesture and every scene every day over a period of shooting four or five months or three or four months, three or four weeks, whatever it might be, you, you can add things very, very quickly and you have a length of time to do that the way in canvas uh, with oil paint, things set very slowly and you can change it, you can adapt it, uh, and, and the portrait begins to take shape over a period of time. In television, you have to work very quickly, and so I think of it as watercolors. The things set very quickly, you have to make your decisions very quickly about the portrait that you're painting of that character, because oftentimes you may have a day or a scene or an hour to come up with something, and so you have to work very, very intuitively and very, very quickly. But the theater, the greatest uh, thing about the theater is that it's also a process that happens over time, but a much longer time than, it, than film. So I think of it as sculpture, and I think of it as a kind of carving away of a big block of granite or something, that somewhere there inside this, there, there lies an ideal performance, an ideal portrait of this character that I'm trying to play. And the, the thing that sustains me night after night is knowing that if I keep chipping away, I'll find this ideal form somewhere within this large block of time. And um, that's, that's the thrill of it, chipping away and discovering. Jerry, more than almost any um, uh, real um, actress I know, you, you are not easily typed. You don't play characters that, I mean, normally producers, directors, so forth, they say, oh, I know, that's a part for so-and-so. They're a usually part. unmarried, I've noticed. But <laughs> 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 <When> you're thinking... <laughs> uh, and, um, but somehow, you're... The parts you have played, unmarried though they might be, uh, are so vastly different in, in personality and character that it's very hard to, to type you. Uh, so that you, I mean, the, the person who's appearing now in the O'Neill is n nothing to do with the, with the person who, who came down the stairs in, in the heiress and, and so forth and all the other parts and, uh, that we've seen you do. So how do you inhabit a character or is it the other way around? Well, first of all, you, you are so good at this. I mean, here you are asking the same question and customizing it for each of us. Well, I just have I'm, to brag on well, you. There's a reason for that. It's not unapropos. No. I'm me. Yeah. For me, I've never been able to act because I couldn't stop being me. I like being me, and I can't stop it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so the reason that, you know, so I couldn't do what yeah. you folk do because I can't, for a minute, I don't want to be anybody else, right? Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, it, uh, yes, of course, uh, Warren Beatty. But nevertheless, <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, so it's easy for me. I'm not, any, I'm not trying to be somebody else. And that's the part that's mysterious to playwrights, and uh, really very much so. It's a mysterious process. Yeah. Well, I guess it is for us, too. We, 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 I, I, when I, as I've had three people to think about my answer, I know that... Um, with each role, it's completely different the way uh, uh, I, I go about it. I know that when I first read The Heiress, it was such a, a wonderful fit that I remember in, in reading it, the, and I was reading it thinking I was going to be playing Aunt Pennyman, uh, which Francis, <laughs> then my agents told me that I was reading for Aunt Pennyman, and I remember thinking, damn, this girl was going to play Catherine, it's so lucky. And I kept, uh, I, I poured over it, and I could feel the way she breathed. As I turned the pages, I could feel the, the way this young woman breathed. And, you know, the way you breathe is the way you stand, and the way you stand. And it was, it was both emotional and physical at once, because those things do go together, the way we are emotionally and the way we breathe. Um, I remember when I played Hannah Jelks, I was so um, 
overcome by the brilliance of this woman and the enlightenment of this woman that I knew I, could, I was sure I could never get anywhere near it uh, because of that. She was so beyond anything I knew in my life. Um, so I thought all I could do was show her the greatest respect by trying to build her a physical home that was worthy of this woman and, and hope that she would then come, that her soul would come and inhabit this home that I lovingly built physically for her. Um, she was from Nantucket. She was, I, mean, I, I knew I, I, there were some things I wanted to, so I approached it more physically in the hope that the spiritual would come to inhabit the house I'd built. Um, uh, it, it just, it, you know, each role demands something quite different from each of us, and at different points in our lives, I think. So I, I don't, um, I have absolutely no answer. <laughs> no definitive answer. Patrick, you have a problem different from uh, the rest of the panelists in one sense. It's a, a, it's a happy problem, but it's nevertheless a problem, and that is you come out in front of audiences having to, in a sense, overcome their knowledge of you in this one startling part that everybody has seen. So the, the fact that you are an actor of enormous accomplishment who's played uh, vastly different roles and have done Shakespeare, have done Shakespeare here, and in The Tempest, I think, and, and, and having done all that and having... Uh, but, but it seems to me that the first thing you have to do with an audience is somehow, or is it not in your mind at all, to say, I am not Picard, I am Patrick Stewart playing this role tonight. It's, it's very much in my mind, and in fact, I had a, a, an ongoing battle with Jerry Schoenfeld, one of our producers, um, because I had worn a hairpiece for this role when we were at the public theater, and Jerry was passionately opposed to me wearing it on Broadway because he said, people won't know who you are. Um, <laughs> Jerry wanted me to be identified as the actor who was in a t successful television series. It's obviously good for business, I guess. Um, so, yes, a lot of what I do has to, is often based on r removing myself as far as possible from my spacesuit. <laughs> because I, 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 I want the audience to see me as an actor and not as a, as a kind of television uh, iconic space figure. But I, I'd like to go back and just quickly address the, the, the original question right. because um, my feeling about this has changed significantly over the years. I started out believing that acting was a form of disguise and I spent years, decades, elabor elaborately um, concealing myself. And uh, uh, it, it took me years to discover that didn't work for me. It, it was uh, not uh, allowing me a voice to speak. My voice was concealed. So something happened uh, and I changed all of that and now I... It, it comes right down to the selection of the work um, I look now for work that resonates for me, not necessarily for great roles or great plays, but something that, that is uh, pertinent to my life now. And then I put that into the work, and uh, putting self into the work has become uh, almost the, the whole process now. Jennifer Ely, uh, you uh, are undergoing this remarkable uh, uh, success in this play and, uh, and being here. First of all, I want to ask two questions, uh, one unrelated to the original question, and that is the difference between playing in London 
and, and in New York. Is there much of a difference? There is quite a difference. There's um, the first few days when we started, we played for about five months on and off over the last year in London before we came here. Uh, we started the Donmar, which is 250 people. And then we moved to the Albury in the West End, which was, I think it's 900, 850. And then came straight here to the Barrymore. And it was, for the first few previews we did here at the Barrymore, it felt sort of like the audience, as though the audience felt like they'd been invited to a party and nobody was talking to them. And they were just, no, or offering them a drink or anything. That they were just sort of there because we, they, they want, and they seem now to be responding to a sort of um, generosity uh, of playing, an emotional generosity, that we, they've sort of called that from us. And the play is really shifting and we're sort of opening up and in a way that I don't, I don't know if English audiences in, in England would respond to. I don't know. I think they've seen a little more serious theater lately than we have been treated to. This has not been a, a, a particularly rich three or four years for very, very serious theater. Right now, there's more on right now, given, given the three of your plays, and uh, the, with Copenhagen arriving, and, and the, you know, and the, uh, it, than, than we have seen in, in, uh, in quite some time. And the audiences, I think, are starting to respond to ideas rather than to, than to uh, some live version of, of, of television. But well, they, alwa they always did, I think. I think they, they, did, they, they didn't, didn't have the material available to respond to. I, mean, I think our play has benefited from that. I'm, I'm not sure saying it it's, it's just benefited from it. The so let me, let me now ask you the, the it's question. It's less snobbish. Uh, Patrick brought a very interesting idea, and that was that how much of it is assuming <laughs> another character or how much of it is it wanting to be somebody else, in other words, burying you. How, in other words, that's really the question. Are you, are you, how many actors try to hide who they are rather than become somebody uh, else uh, by, by assertion? I have a quick answer. Good. <laughs> I'll throw in. I uh, sometimes have a hard time speaking. I am um, come from a family of great storytellers in Tennessee, and I was never able to do that. I was very, you know, the act was meant to be shy, and I know that's the stereotypical thing that you, oh, there's, the actors are really shy, and that, but I am kind of, and I am not particularly articulate, and to be able to go out on stage and speak O'Neill or Chekhov or Shaw or Paula Vogel or Tennessee Williams for two or three hours every night has, is, that, that's why I've stayed in the theater, because you don't get to do that in film, but you do get to do that in theater night after night, and to be as articulate as you ever dreamed of being. So that, that, that's, that's it for me, I know. Let me ask you, you brought up Tennessee, and it just uh, through kind of a, just as a thought, you were born in England, but in, in London? No, I was born in North Carolina. North Carolina. <laughs> Good. That's useful for the question I'm going to ask. Patrick, you were born... I'm a Yorkshireman. A Yorkshireman. North England. You're in Tennessee. Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Chicago. Chicago. The Bronx. And the Bronx. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was born and raised in Los Angeles, and I keep thinking of something Yogi Berra said, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> <laughs> what possibly could have happened to bring the, the, the six or the seven of us together at this day? What, in other words, what fork 
really in your life? Do, do you remember it that, made, that, that, you, that changed everything? And how close was it that you might not have taken it? Patrick. I'm Adam, that's Patrick. I'm <laughs> so you're Adam. And you're Patrick? Although I don't mind being mistaken for it. Yeah. I mean, um, the feeling is mutual. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, you know, this is actually all still very new for me. Um, you know, I never set out to be an actor. Um, I was always a musician and a songwriter, and that's how I ended up getting the job in Rent. And it sort of has snowballed, and I'm now a part of the theater community, which I'm completely honored to be a part of. But, you know, I'm still finding myself as an actor. I'm still finding my way, my, what techniques I'm going to use, however I'm going to manage to continue to have a life in the theater. I'm still finding what that is. Um, and I've, I've learned from every answer you've all given already. <laughs> um, and I think that, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to come upon a situation where I was able to use my singing ability uh, to, to, to work. And, and uh, as, a, as a job, and that sort of opened up a lot of doors for me and, and, and exposed me to things that I never thought that uh, I could do and never thought that I even had a desire to be a part of. Um, and so that fork for me was, was just, you know, m that fork for me was actually the desire to see what it was like to audition for something. I had never auditioned for anything, and I, I, I never comprehended of even getting the job. I just wanted to see what, the pro what it felt like to audition for something. How close did you come to not auditioning for it? Very. This close. <laughs> That's what, it's amazing. Isn't it? Do you remember a decision that you made, Tanya, that, that happened to change everything, and yeah. maybe it wasn't so automatic a decision? Yeah, I, um... I'm sort of shy like Cherry, and I had a teacher who just sort of insisted that I was going to be an actress. And he would call schools and make them give me scholarships. And so I studied at the St. Nicholas Theatre Company, and then he'd make me apply to other colleges. And I went to Carnegie Mellon, and over Christmas break I was taking a vacation to Puerto Rico, and he had read in the paper that Hal Prince was coming to Chicago to audition for Mary Libby Roll Along. And he wanted me to come home and audition. I was like, I'm going to Puerto Rico. <laughs> I'm coming to Chicago to audition. And it wasn't even for Hal Prince. I had to audition for a casting director who then had to decide if I could audition for Hal Prince. And it was like, no way. I'm not missing Puerto Rico because this woman is not going to give me that opportunity. And he convinced me to give up Puerto Rico. And um, Joanna Marillan did allow me to see Hal Prince. And he made a decision on that spot and flew us to New York the next day and cast me in that show. And I was never coming to New York. I had come and looked at Juilliard and said, I, I, I can't live in this city. It's, <laughs> I can't do it. So <laughs> it really changed my life. It seems to me that the, the fork, the, the choice, the thing that really changed it was going to that particular acting team. Well, he was my, in my elementary right. school, you right. know. He was an so elementary school acting teacher, and he just pushed me and pushed me, and I probably wouldn't be doing anything if he hadn't pushed me and pushed me and pushed me. John, do you remember what really changed, what really Yes, happened? I do, Peter. I, was, uh, I, was, I discovered acting in college. I had uh, grown up in Massachusetts in Springfield, Mass. Nobody from Springfield, Mass ever went to Broadway, ever made movies, ever went to television. Nobody in my family, nobody ever. I'd never been to the theater. I'd never seen anything on stage. I'd, my parents, parents would barely let me go to the movies. I only watched television one day a week, and then it was like the <laughs> wild world of Disney. Or, you know, because I was like totally sheltered, you know? Uh, the first black person I ever met was uh, Brian Gumbel, who was my freshman roommate in college. You know, it was like so stupid. 
So then suddenly, I was in this college up in Maine, Bates College, and uh, I was going in to sneak in to where I had left my backpack to get a fake ID to buy some beer. <laughs> <laughs> and the acting teacher, who reminds me quite a bit of you, Isabel, a wonderful woman named uh, Lavinia Schaefer, and she saw me come in to sneak in the corner where I had left it uh, there, because I was, I was on the debating team debating in football, and I'd gone there on a debating football scholarship. <laughs> Your usual debating football. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to grab my, my, my ID, because the guys were waiting out in the car to go get the beer, and uh, she said, no, sit. And I said, what? And she, next thing I know, there's a script in my hand, and she read. And so, you know, I'm sitting around with all these other people, the next thing I know, I'm reading, and, and at the end of the reading, she said, okay, you got the part. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> it was much ado about nothing. I had just gotten the lead to play Benedict. You mean the play, The play. The, <laughs> the play by Shakespeare. And the next right. thing I know, I'm in military uniform, on stage, speaking poetry and being amazingly articulate in front of a couple hundred people, and it's opening night, and it's like, you know, it's so thrilling. And I always loved Halloween. It was always my favorite time when you put on a mask and you become somebody else. And now I got a sword, and I'm with this beautiful woman saying, are you yet living, you know, and saying things that I would never say. And, and, and I fell in love with it. And from that time, I, it's like football and debating came together in the theater because it was a team sport. <laughs> and you got to speak, you know. <laughs> 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 interesting because this is a successful... Uh, response to that, I, my, when I arrived in college, my first play, I was 17, I wrote in a cassette from the, it was a very small college, and there was one terrific looking guy who I wanted for the leading man, and he was in the economy, you know, he was studying economics, and not the slightest interest in the and I worked on, worked on, worked on, and finally he played it. It changed his life, he became an actor, he spent his whole life as an unsuccessful actor. Oh, I felt so oh. But you know, we're sitting, ah. you six are sitting here because it worked out, you know. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Why, do you remember the moment that changed everything? Well, I, you know, I don't, I think I was headed so much in the acting direction my whole life. Oh, really? A little tap dance recital when I was five, the end of my dancing career, but I remember the applause and the, all of that, and then I... I had a wonderful creative dramatics teacher, Miss Ruby Kreider, in my hometown. She always moved me. In fact, there's a friend here who remembers Miss Ruby. And then, and then I went to, uh, uh, well, I saw Colleen Dewhurst and Jason Robards when I was 16 and Moon uh, at a summer program at Northwestern, which was incredibly influential. And then I went to Carnegie Mellon, and that was very influential. Were you a cherub, too? I was a cherub. Were you a cherub, too? <laughs> we got to talk. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I, I think probably what, what led me here is I, I, I came to New York and I got into the Brooklyn Academy of Music Theater Company, and which I was really lousy in, and uh, I was 23 and I didn't have an idea in the world what I was doing, but a crazy Romanian director named Andre Belgrader saw me in, that, in, in the show I was doing there and cast me in, as Rosalind in As You Like It and took me up to the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I, I did rep for six out of ten seasons. And that's where I grew up as an actor. And that's where I, I got to finally, I think at the age of 33, felt I could hang my shingle as an actor, because I finally had the experience I needed. And I guess it was getting the part of Rosalind and going to that rep company that was the fork in my road. Because I don't know that I would have survived as an actor if I hadn't had a home where I could be um, uh, 
Do you think there are any no, sane Romanian directors? No, not a one. <laughs> I, I found the fact that you, had, that you studied tap. Now, there, I think you did, with Tommy Toon, you did Stepping Out uh -huh. in, on Broadway. That was the first class I'd had since I was five. Really? Yeah. 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 That's it. That, yeah, was that, that play was quite interesting, incidentally. It, it didn't work, but it was really fascinating. No, I mean, it didn't work on the audience for some reason, but I, I found it really quite compelling. We had a good time. Yeah, yeah. sure. Patrick, tell us about how it, when it happened that you'd made this decision. I think there were three separate forks. The first one when, was when at 12, my English master. And you know, at least in the classical theater in England, there is invariably an English teacher lurking somewhere in all actors' backgrounds. He cast me in a play. And the first time I walked on stage, I, I knew that I was in the safest place that I'd ever been in. Life wasn't too safe for me when I was growing up. The stage was, um, was absolutely home. And then at 15, I left school, not because I dropped out. The rumor got around. I didn't drop out. I finished the, the minimum that the state required then in England. And I was working on a local newspaper and, and doing a lot of amateur acting. And, and this conflicted with my duties as a newspaper reporter. And the editor gave me an ultimatum, which was to give up all my amateur acting and become a reporter or leave his newspaper. And How hard was it? It was so easy. I packed up my typewriter <laughs> that within the half hour and I was out of the building with my friend hanging on my heel saying that you're making a terrible, terrible mistake, don't do this. Then I went to try to find out how to become an actor. And then, and then I guess the most significant other one was lecturing at UCLA in 1986 and finding that a man called Robert Justman, who was to be one of the executive producers of Star Trek, was attending this course of public lectures uh, I was doing, I was talking about Shakespeare, and, and he said to his wife, that's the captain. And so I guess that was a terrific change right. for me. Jennifer, first of all, how did you get to, you're an American born, how did, or were, you, were your family simply on, on, on holiday? I just, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, my parents live in North Carolina. And um, I went to um, drama school in England, but uh, my mother's English, so I always went back and forth a lot. And I changed schools 18 times, so I was, um, I sort of got teased so much for having an American accent when I was there and having an English accent when I was here that I just well, became bilingual. Well, you don't get teased anymore. Literally. And now I don't get teased, and I, um, I wouldn't work there so if I didn't talk the like this. So when did the decision happen? So, uh, to be an actress. I don't yeah. think it ever did. I've done everything in reverse, I think, because I never, I always wanted to be, I think probably the only reason I do it is I've got some chromosome glitch where I really do passionately want to be somebody else and don't have a very strong sense of self in some ways. So... I always wanted to do anything I could to be somebody else, but I was always too shy to ever stand up in front of anybody and do it. So actually, the training side of things was very painful because it involved, it involved doing that, um, but something kept driving me through it. And it wasn't actually until I first started being in front of a camera after I'd left drama school that I began to really feel that nobody was watching me when I was doing it and that I could actually sort of go through the, the wardrobe and in the last two years is only when I've begun to feel that on stage. So I've sort of done it all in reverse. And now I'm passionate about it. <laughs> I love it. Well, you bring up an interesting question, which I, uh, I, I was about to start some controversy. But I, there's an interesting question before that. And it has to do with craft. Um, in the past generation or so, in the past 25, 30 years, uh, craft has not uh, has been waning a bit in terms of development of artists. It's not just in 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 the performing arts. It's in the creative arts, the painters and musicians and so forth. 
they're impatient. They, and part of that, I, I suppose, is that it's very hard now to work, especially for performing artists, very hard to work out of the sight. Uh, because you start television and, and, and all, you're very visible. <coughs> and um, I've noticed that, that, that craft keeps getting downplayed. Now, all of you are, are, seem very well uh, uh, grounded in it. Uh, there's talent and there's craft. And, um, but I wonder whether or not talent needs, my question is, does talent need craft? Uh, let's, uh, yes, that, that, that's what I wanted to ask, because you all make it sound so natural. It all came so easy, and that's what it was, and all of a sudden you're an actor. But I know that it wasn't like that. And so what, what did you bring to it? How did you know, Adam, you say, for more performances and more, and more audience looking at you, you'll know right. how much to take off. Right. And each one of you have said, in some form or other, that you will know when you get that beat that this is the right thing for you. How do you know that? What do you bring to it? What went before to bring you to that stage that you can do this, to either take off the clothing, put it on, or to know how to react to the audience and know what the craft, to bring a craft to play? Where does that come from? I mean, a tennis player spends five hours a day hitting a ball, hitting a million balls a day, you know? It has to be the most stultifyingly boring thing for an athlete to have to do that. And yet, because of their expertise and their talent, and you do it because you can't win without it. And is there, does craft pose, uh, again, I'll tell you about it, does, does, does craft, is craft, was it a bother? Um, it, it's not a bother, but I think that there is def a, a definite lack of, of craft in the people of maybe my generation who are coming up because, of, you know, entertainment and the media is the dominating driving force on this planet, more than money, more than sex, more than anything. It's, it's entertainment, it's getting your face out there, it's becoming a star. And so much of it is focused on youth. You know, the 18-year-olds, the 20-year-olds, and, and, and that's what's happening now. I guess it was always pretty prevalent, but I think it's extremely prevalent now. And people want to get out there and they want to do it immediately and they don't have time to go to school and study because look at all the people that have become all the famous movie stars, the 20-year-old movie stars who never went to school and studied. They, they, they never studied acting. They just, they smiled and they become huge movie stars. And so, so everybody, you know, so kids and people who are growing up who want to be actors, they don't look at people such as yourselves who have studied and really put time into your craft and really worked at it to make yourselves the best um, artists you can be. They look at... The, the, the peers, the people of their age who've never studied, who've never done anything other than smile and look pretty. And, and so that's what, that's what their goal becomes. And that's the more attainable goal because you don't have to do anything for that. Um, so I think that that's, that, that's where the, 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 the lack of craft comes from. For, you know. And I know for myself, I, you know, I need to study, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to study. Because, <laughs> because I'm, 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 a very, I'm, I'm a very undisciplined person when it comes to certain, thing like, thir certain things like that. I, I, I feel that I have a certain amount in me that I'm able to do, and I know that there's vast amounts that I need to work on. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I have the motivation to go out and work on it. Um, and I think that, and, and that's just a, a, a flaw in myself. You know, it's, it's a flaw in my character, and it's a flaw in, in my professional uh, motivation. Um, but... I think that a lot of people maybe suffer from that, and uh, and you know, but then uh, you know, 
on the other side of the coin, I know a lot of people who spend years and years and years studying. They've gone to school, acting school. They've dropped out of high school. They, and they've been in acting school for years. And they get on a stage, and they choke, and they can't say a word, and they can't keep their eyes open, and they can't look at the audience, and they can't do anything. All they can do is work in the classroom. And working in the classroom and working on a stage are completely different things. It's, it's two different animals. So, you know, there's, there's my long convoluted answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Tanya, you, you have, but is there uh, a craft that you all use is your, in, in, the, in acting, acting in the theater? Is there a craft that each one can say, well, I do this, but I don't <coughs> do that? What is it? Um. <coughs> You were going to finish your question? No, I was just going to say, you, you, doing musicals, you have more disciplines than, sure. than in other words, to, to accomplish. There's singing and there's dance, you know, which are, it's not, I'm not saying it's more difficult than that, but there are disciplines involved, and disciplines require craft. Well, for me, I want to get to your original right. question, which is about talent versus craft, right. and I don't mean this in an egotistical way, but I think that some people are, like, anointed in a certain way, there are people who just, they're special. And you, might, and, and you just can't take your eyes off them, or they have just something that is exciting about them. And sometimes you can, I've gone to the theater and I've seen those people and I've wished they had some craft <laughs> or some direction. <laughs> because it's like there's all this fabulousness and it's just kind of spraying everywhere and you wish they knew how to take it and focus it into a moment <laughs> so that we could see that. And for me, I think with my teacher pushing me and me always being able to get these scholarships, it's like I had this talent thing. And people were always responding to that, but I felt completely inauthentic because I wasn't doing anything. I was just standing up there and reading these lines, and they were like, oh. And so for years I had this incredible fear, like, well, what if that doesn't show up one day? And, and someone gave me this great role, like a, I got to play Billie Holiday one day, and I botched it completely, but it was like I needed to know what it was like to fail because I did not trust this talent thing. You know, it, I knew it was going to let me down one day and I just botched this part. And then I, when I, after I got married and had my first child, I went back and studied with a man named William Esper. And his work was not about, in, in college at Carnegie Mellon they were like, you're talented, nobody cares. You know, people who work hard are going to get more work than you. And it was just about beating me up for having this talent thing. And Bill's work was about bringing all that was me into the work. And it wasn't bad that I had talent. He just wanted to teach you how, if a day came where you didn't feel like even being at the theater, there were steps you could take so that you'd still be doing the behavior that the audience knew was necessary for the role. And, and I studied with him for two years, and his belief is, you know, you study for two years and then you go work, and maybe it takes another seven, and then you're an actor. And so after leaving that, I felt like I got craft. I don't have to worry about being talented, and I could go in and I knew how to, how to conceive the behavior that would convey to the audience what was necessary in the moment. And so that gave me a level of security that when I got Jelly's Last Jam, which was a show where... I had an audition on a Saturday, I was the last person of all people, and they gave me like four lines. And I went in and they were funny lines, and I read them. I went, ba dum bum ba dum bum ba dum bum And then they gave me the script, and it was like, this is an amazing woman. Oh my God, can I live this? And I went and I went to rehearsal, and I was so afraid to apply all these things there that I didn't for lots of rehearsals, and people sort of looked at me like, why did she get this job? <laughs> and then I did this run-through, and I did this, I like risked being all this stuff, and they hated it. <laughs> 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 because they, they weren't looking for that. And, 
And it was my struggle to say that I was more interested in doing this craft thing than just being my talented, fabulous self. And you know, ultimately, that was successful for me, but it was a struggle. John? Well, Peter, I went the old-fashioned classic way. I don't know, Peter, uh, how... Uh, I, I, did you go to drama school? Yeah. Yeah. And did you go to drama school? Did you go to drama school? Uh, you didn't, you I went didn't to finish. Yeah, I went to drama school. So a lot of us went to drama school. And that's the one thing that maybe you're asking about. Where do you get the craft? Yes, it was one thing to do it sort of instinctually on stage at Bates, but then, <coughs> like, you're in Maine, and then, uh, like, wh how do you get a job? How do you become an actor and you're in Maine, you know? <laughs> Boston, uh, you know, <laughs> New York. I mean, New York was like Oz, uh, Hollywood, forget about it. You're not even thinking in those terms. You can't get there from where you are. So then I, I was in the library one day, and I read about the Yale Drama School. I thought, Yale Drama? I didn't even know they had a drama school. I didn't know what a drama school was. I sent away for the brochure. I read it. I thought, wow, that sounds cool. I applied to Yale, and I got in. And I spent three years there learning craft, starting every single day with yoga, uh, an hour of yoga, learning stretching and movement, the body, and learning that your body is your instrument, then going to vocal exercises and singing classes and fencing and mask work and scene class and, you know, for three years. Then after the end of my first year at Yale, I, I became a director and I got a, master, a double master's in directing as well. And now I find myself, you know, all 25 years later, doing a play off Broadway called The Director. And we've, and we've done, and we've done now 85, 90, 100, something performances. And I'm sometimes I'm really tired like you. How do you show up at night? I know how difficult it is. We call it emotional mountain climbing to come on stage every night when you're, you know, you're suffering personal whatever pain at home and your life is falling apart a little bit, yet you have the responsibility of going on in front of an audience. How do you do that? Well, what I do is that I go back to my Yale craft days and I go backstage and I do yoga. And I start every night before I go on stage. I mean, our director Evan is here, he'll tell you, I'm back there doing yoga, stretching, and then I go into the shower because I, there's no other place to do it. There's no, it's a little theater, right? So I close the door to the shower and I do vocal exercises. And I'm saying, you know? And all, you know, scales and boring. And what happens is that tired, battered, you know, self that arrived at the theater thinking, oh my God, suddenly it becomes energized and becomes gigantic inside. And the energy is released with the vocal exercises and your imagination. I start doing lines from the play. And by the time they're knocking on the shower door saying, places, Mr. Shea, I'm ready. And I come out, <laughs> you know, I am, I don't know, it's magic. It's like the adrenaline pumps. And then I go out onto the stage and I enter in the dark and I go up into my little space before the lights come up. And I, also, I actually do a sign of the cross in front of the audience because I feel we're under an old church and I think it's like a holy space. And I remember that the roots of acting are, are spiritual in nature. And they were all, in a way, you know, like uh, priests on the stage and priestesses, you know, like telling stories to congregations who were there to be uplifted and, and that we have a spiritual responsibility to become those characters. And so anyway, when you start thinking about those things, that's the craft then it allows you to go on even when your talent is waning. Well, suppose the audience doesn't react to all that energy and everything <laughs> that you're giving. <laughs> then what do you do? If the audience doesn't react... Um, do you have something that you call upon? Well, hmm? Why don't we all ask somebody you? else? <laughs> <laughs> all of you. What, 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 do you, what do? you call upon is your agent, I think. But I think you're always going to run into such audiences, and uh, I think there's nothing, it's not your fault. Do you take it as your fault? No. no. Uh, 
Well, I mean, I, I, I listening to all of this, I, I, uh, when does this air? This, uh, <laughs> when does this first air? Seriously, do you even know? I have no. This show, no, we don't know. You have no idea. Yeah. Well, it doesn't matter. I, I. I oh, oh! I think you're getting some information. That's the crack is exciting. That's the crack up about that you can be discussing and thinking about being on the panel and answering the question, and yet one eye of you is looking at this <laughs> and saying, "Look what's happening over here," and then go right back into character again. That is that craft. is craft. Yes. That's well, right. <laughs> Um, I, know, I, I, have ha I have undergone the, the first severe stage fright of my career, and I think, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm now middle-aged, and I've had some wonderful successes and things that fit me really well. But for various and sundry reasons, when I began rehearsals for Moon, I had a confidence crash. I had none, less than. And so I had to build a structure for this amazing role in this most remarkable play with no confidence. And I had seen Colleen do it when I was 16 and it had changed my life. So I was dealing with the ghost of Colleen, I was dealing with um, things that I don't need to go into. But I was left with a structure um, that was not always, it doesn't serve me as well as I would have liked to have created. And in Chicago in particular, I, it took every <coughs> amount of courage I had to get on stage every night. I was completely constricted and paralyzed and terrified. I would literally go on stage and pose in this position and say this line, and walk over here and pose in this position and say that line. And it was... Um, and I've said that if I could have, if, if I could have broken my leg neatly, my left tibia, you know, so that I wouldn't be lame for the rest of my life, I would have done it in Chicago. Because I knew I had to come to New York and open in this Broadway show. They weren't going to fire me. I was one of the stars. You know? <laughs> if I went, then the they just could have fired me. I would have been out of my, I mean, that's the wonderful thing about, about I mean, that's the, t that's the terrible thing about success. When you get successful, they don't fire you because you're part of the money, you know, your wife. But if before success, they just fire you and you're out of your misery yeah. and you can get beyond yeah. it and you can go on to the next thing. But I, there was no way out, you know. I was trapped. And, and, it, and it was so humiliating because I'm a decent actor, you know. I, I have pride in what I do and I just <coughs> wasn't being able to do it. So I had to call upon all that craft that I have built up over the years just to get out there. And, and opening night in New York was one of the most terrifying. I thought, if I can get through this, then there are a few things in life professionally that I will not be able to handle. Because I was really convinced that I might not make it through the night. It was that I was in that kind of panic and terror. I am now, it has subsided, and I'm starting to breathe again. And, and, uh, and, and within the structure that I, I have to work with, I'm. I go to work every night, and, and it feels like salvation for me to have another chance to grow within this structure that will only ever be this big because we can't go back and start rehearsals all over again, you know. But it's, it's been a tremendously humbling, and, 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 and I've learned that 
I mean, it's been a, a personal failure for me, but one that I am learning from because we must allow ourselves to fail. And that's what I've learned from this, because we don't let ourselves fail in this business. And my mama used to always say, never confuse your self-worth with your professional success or failure. And it's something that's impossible to do in this, in this business or any business that people are passionate about. But as long as you know it in the back of your head that that is the truth and that is the goal, it's, it, it helps you get, get through it. And also, when I was at my lowest ebb, I would think, you know, we're not meant to play every role. And I would think of Colleen Dewhurst coming down the stairs as Catherine Sloper, and it would make me laugh so hard. That's, that's wonderful. <laughs> that's, that I would, that's quite I would, wonderful. You know, yes, you know, as the heiress. As yeah. That would be... Yeah. Remarkable. Now, <laughs> first of she all, probably could have done it. But yes, but it would have, it would have it been, been a, a larger staircase. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, Patrick, you and Jennifer both come from a slightly different system, or maybe not. In other words, English actors, one Americans think of a more, a much more formal education. I mean, the Royal Academy is, is legendary, uh, and um, and the other schools there. Was that your experience? Yeah. I also, I was, I was getting some kind of formal training from the age of 12. My local authority, uh, it was unique in England, provided um, professionals to train amateur actors. And so I was getting a lot of that, a lot of verse, a lot of um, movement and uh, speech from the age of 12. Uh, someone wants to find to me craft or technique, as I've always thought of it, as being what you use when you don't feel it anymore. Um, but what Jerry said just now about failing and the right to fail is really important because I grew up when the repertory system in England was still so huge. Every I really, small town had a permanent repertory company. And so I suppose in the first four or five years that I was an actor, I probably appeared in 60 or 70 plays, maybe more. And I failed in a lot of them because I was miscast. You know, you make use of the permanent company to do everything and anything. But also, nightly, you're learning a discipline. For one thing, in weekly rep, the discipline of learning um, and the discipline of showing up and of being entertaining and different. And also, the ability to fail and acknowledging what lies behind that failure. My son is an actor here in New York and he doesn't have that opportunity of doing play after play after play. He looks for one play. He had one play last year, one play this year. It's so hard to acquire these skills now. I found, Jennifer, that here in New York, that actors, successful professional actors, take their craft, it seems to me, much more seriously than I experienced in England. I remember my first time here in 1970 with Midsummer Night's Dream, meeting an actor who had just won a Tony, and I was at a party with him, and he told me the next morning he was starting a class. And I said, class? Why do you need to go to class? He said, well, I don't do tap, and I want to learn tap. Now, our, one of my two leading ladies in Mount Morgan, the morning, what am I saying, the morning, the evening that we opened, went to a rapier and dagger class. I, I don't think that happens quite so much in England. <laughs> <laughs> Here, people seem to take that craft, even when they're successful, more seriously. Did you, uh, are you from a, a uh, did you go through a formal, formal uh, 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 theater I education? I suppose it was supposed to be. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't think it really was. 
I don't think I don't think I really I don't think any of us really learnt much at all at drama school, <laughs> and I don't I, I don't know whether that's the school's fault or not, and I'm not going to say on television that it is, but I um I I don't think we did. I think we were at a school that was going through a strange time, and I I'm sure I have some craft. <laughs> I survived 15 months at the Royal Shakespeare Company. I must have <laughs> some craft somewhere. Um, and I didn't think I would, but I did. And um, so it must be there. But I think it's come about from doing things. I think all of it. And I think it, it shifts from part to part. I mean, a bit like what Cherry was saying about going about um, sort of absolving yourself into a character. It just... You sort of, I think the part teaches you and the play teaches you. And the, what I'm doing at the moment, sort of, you feel really awful if you bring any craft on stage, really, because mm -hmm. it sort of feels like, um, and so we don't really, and that sort of has become the craft of this particular piece, is that there isn't any, so uh, there's no blocking, there's no anything. We just kind of do what we want to do. Um, and of course, things have emerged uh, that are important to tell the story. And you think, oh, that sort of works more often than not. But... Um, the freedom of that is a is a craft in itself. But to Dunbar stay that open. More, well, it, it's a thrust. I mean, you're out in the audience, uh, isn't it? Uh, well, we've only gone we've gone about three feet into. I mean, when we first did it, it was three sides. Yeah, right. So that's what I mean. The change from that uh, to to a proscenium theatre. Yeah, I mean, we we want the audience to see us. So you know, you generally, although. We but do you so really are improving. A lot of it. I mean, we can do whatever. I mean, because most of it is two. There are two actors on stage for most of it. It's um, and Stephen Delane who I and I, sort of, the ones in most of those scenes, just the two of us, and we sort of just trust each other and do what we want. What um, they do is extraordinary. Have you have Yes, you I have, it? and it's quite a, it's it remarkable. It is extraordinary, remarkable. because um, there, when the play began, I had a feeling that I shouldn't be there watching. There was something so private and uh, exclusive about it. Um, but it... But oh God, what we you didn't, did... We didn't offer you a drink at the party. <coughs> well, I had plenty to drink at your party. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but what you did I was that you drew us... At least you, me, speaking for myself and my companion, you drew us into your experience. I don't think I've ever seen a company working in quite the way that this company works. It's, it's as though you're permitted to be a little tiny fly on the wall, observing what's happening inside these rooms. And well, it's thrilling. You brought up a very interesting thing, and Cherry hit upon it first, and now <coughs> you're, you're, you're kind of uh, sideswiped it right then, and that's this. What most people, even, pe even playwrights and, and, and people who are in the theater but don't perform, find mysterious is how can you go out there eight times a week, week after week, month after month, playing the same part. Now, you talked about the fact that each, at this particular play, you are, you are using it as a development, you are, it's happening to you that way. I once uh, wrote something that, that Julie Harris did on the stage and she told me that she looks at a long run as a chance to keep getting better in the role. Well, you know, but uh, how do you face, in other words, you've all had long runs, all of you, and, uh, and how do you, what, what is it after five months, six months, uh, are you uh, are you bored? Are you are you exhilarated? What 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 is it that you go out there and do the same thing you did that you've done already 111 times? I think for me that the, uh, the challenge is definitely obviously to keep getting better with each performance, but definitely having done long runs before, at some point, that kind of 
fizzles and, and the boredom sets in. It's, it's inevitable, it happens. So you just, you have to call on what you've learned in, in, in all that time that you've been doing the show up until that point. You have to call on all that experience and, and all that character growth that has accumulated underneath you and you have to use that and you have to go out there and give that same performance and inside of you, you may not be feeling the same thing that you felt five months earlier, that same exhilaration. It's, it's, it's just impossible. You can't. But you use what you've learned and you've used the, the growth of that character to give that, that, that same performance. Now you're in Joe's in, in class. You have a long time. Do you go into overdrive at a certain point? For me, I, I think I discovered I'm not meant to be a nine-to-fiver. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think I'm ever finished with a role at opening. I mean, it's sort of like, in a way, you just start to work because if you've been rehearsing all the way up to your opening, you haven't even done it enough times to even synthesize it, and then it just takes time to start thinking, and then as you're playing it, more ideas come to you that you couldn't think about because you were worrying about other things. So that usually will last me about a year, and then it's time for me to leave. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like, sounds like <laughs> it's, it's time enough. for me to leave. I was thinking of that because in Cats, there's one lady who, who's been in it the entire run, uh, and Marion Seldes is famous for staying with plays for the, for the entire run, and it's a remarkable discipline. John, what, what happens to you after a long time? Well, what happens is that you go through peaks and valleys. I think anybody who's been in a long run will know that there's a period of discovery at the beginning, which is exhilarating, then you plateau into a period of repetition and sort of boredom, and then you break through if you stay long enough and you're still searching, you break through into another period of discovery sometime into the run, which is really exciting. And, and, the, and a, a well-written play, if it's got depth to it, and if your subtext, that craft thing that the actor provides, the thoughts, is rich, then it's, it's uh, infinite in its possibility. And also, every audience is different. Some audiences just sit and listen, other audiences laugh and applaud, and so you learn that the audience teaches you about the play. Also, other actors come, come and go from the production, and that's, you've been there for a long point. time, new people come and that's go, a good point. and they give and they bring completely different things to the they production wake you and up. performance, <laughs> and they wake you up. And so you may have been complacent doing, I'm, I'm, I've been sitting like this for six months talking to this person, you know, and then a new person comes in and you can't, for whatever reason, you can't sit like that anymore. And it, you have to figure out a new way to sit and a new way to, you know, and so that kind of, you know, lights a fire. I think it was on one of these seminars that Marion Selby said that, in discussing the long ones, I, I won't hear it. She said, what would you think if you were lying on, on, in, in a hospital room and the, and the doctor said, oh my God, this is the 50th appendectomy I did today. <laughs> I get so bored. And she said, no, you have taken an oath to the audience. Yeah. You were an actor. And the audience is different every single time. And so with that, we have to now stand up, stretch, and think a little bit about what we want to ask these wonderfully gifted people. And uh, don't go far away, because we'll be right back. <laughs> this is CUNY TV, Channel 75. working in the theater. Before we return to this wonderful group of panelists, I would like to remind you that The Wing is more than a sponsor of seminars and more than our famous Tony Awards for excellence in the theater. The Wing is an organization whose year-round programs are dedicated to serving the theater and the community. 
And since one of our goals is developing new audience for the theater, we have created meaningful programs for students, like Introduction to Broadway, which began eight years ago and has enabled more than 80,000 New York City high school students to attend a Broadway show, many for the very first time. And through our theater and school programs, theater professionals like these on our seminars go directly into classrooms to work with and talk to students about working in the theater. In addition, we have a hospital program, which dates back to World War II when we operated our legendary stage door canteens. And today's version of the program brings talent from Broadway, off-Broadway, and the cabaret world to entertain patients in hospitals, senior day and nursing facilities and centers, and childcare facilities in the New York area. They all bring the magic of theater to those who are unable to get out to enjoy the theater themselves. We are proud of the work we do and are delighted with the wonderful working relationship we have with the theatrical community. We're indeed grateful to our members and everyone who makes possible all that the American Theater Wing does. So, now, let's continue the seminar with our moderator, Peter Stone, the only writer to win a Tony, Oscar, and Emmy Award. Peter, congratulations on all three of those, and please start <laughs> working. <laughs> Uh, let's do something a little closer, maybe to an acting exercise in one sense. No one's going to have to act. But what I want to do is make, I want to throw out a question that's maybe a little more controversial, uh, editorialize something, and then uh, why don't you argue with each other? <laughs> <laughs> and basically it's this, that writers are, are one of the things that they're most uh, confused by and have opinions very strong are things such as the method. In other words, actor's studio approach in New York, which is a kind of modified Stanislavski approach to, to, to uh, creating a part, as opposed to perhaps, we'll call it the Royal Academy School, where a part is created and, and you set it and you reproduce it every night, don't produce it every night. Um, and it's always been, writers find film, uh, I've done a lot of film, and you love the idea of the method, or, or the active studio idea, because you, you have to constant, your concentration has to be immediate, be, as, as we spoke with John about, about having to pick up a, a scene in the middle before you've done the scene before it and the scene after it and so forth, and that concentration in front of all that technical stuff. But it seems to writers, to, I'm speaking for the group I've talked to at least, who don't like it much in the theater because it requires, every night is becomes a kind of a gamble. Is the person going to feel like it that night, rather than you watch the great classical actors come from England who reproduce it, have done it, have said it, and they go out there. I'm not saying they're, as I said, on overdrive, but they have their character already. So, have you, I mean, has any of you been trained method-wise and feel that as, as being something that's, that's valuable, or is in other words, would you rather have your character totally set by opening night, despite the fact that you're, in this particular one, <coughs> growing in it? Or is it something that, 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 that you want to, every night, come out and recreate? Not reproduce, but recreate. 
I've had this experience yeah, once <laughs> where a director writer was unhappy with my performance because the way I said the lines every night was different and he wanted to hear the rhythm of his words a certain way every night. Well, of course, I won because the bear is going to do what the bear is going to do when I get out on the stage. Um, I actually find that when I fall into a rhythm of saying things, I'm being bad, you know, and I will make myself come up with any other way, a meaning that might not be appropriate just because I know I'm not really in the moment if I've kind of fallen into you know, so that's how it is for me. I try to just be present with the people that are there and it just I don't think I ever change the content or the intent, but you know, for a writer who's used to a rhythm, I am not able to give that. <clears throat> uh, were, have you ever used the, I mean, do you practice uh, a Stanislavski approach as opposed to a more classical uh, acting approach? Have you ever been in that position to, to try either or, or depend on either? I, I suspect that these are questions that interest the general public uh, more than they do actors. Ah, that's an interesting I have a feeling, something I'm getting from all of my pals up here, that, that we really don't know what to say to this question because I, I have no answer to it. My, in my formal training at Bristol, yes, Stanislavski was taught um, and, and his, his textbooks were, uh, 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 were set texts for us. Um, but then I had a director who had his own wacky ideas about how acting should be taught. And I don't know anymore what I do. There's certainly no method attached to it at all. I guess it's pretty much hit and miss, the really. Stuart method, you have to call it. Yeah. I, That's, oh, I, I, uh, when I was at Carnegie Mellon, we had four different acting heads the four years that I was there. And they would march in uh, and say, our way is the one way, the true way, and the only <laughs> way, and forget all else that you have been taught. And, uh, uh, and then that, that regime would march out at the end of the year, and the next one would come in and say, we are the one way, the true way, the only way. And, uh, and of course, it made us very jaded, cynical seniors by the time we were graduating. But it also was marvelous because we had all these different techniques at our disposal, and, and you, you steal from this one and that one and you know, whatever the hell you can to come up with you know, the... the the, the Jones method. The Jones method, right. You find but a mishmash. You, you, you ultimately rely on, on, on everything that, that uh, you've learned to put it together? Um, um, I, well, I was just going to say that maybe more about playwrights um, than, than the actual question. But when we were rehearsing the real thing, um, and Tom Stoppard was, in, was there for the first um, few weeks of rehearsal, certainly, and then sort of came and went. And I think he found it extremely frustrating because it is done in a different style than I think he's seen his work done before. And um, he obviously has heard a rhythm. He had heard a rhythm 20 years earlier when he wrote it and remembered that, obviously. Uh, and he, we would sort of do a scene and he would say, well, <coughs> yes, I, I, he'd say, I don't understand. He said, well, that was it, but it was it last time as well, but it was totally different. But why didn't you just do that again? Because that was right. So <laughs> why, why did you do it right a different way mm -hmm. this time? 
And then we said, well, that's just because, and basically it was just been a process over the last year of getting to know the text and the story and the, the bare bones of the story and then know where you can put the meat, what night, what night you want to kind of flesh out the bones mm -hmm. and do it um, the way you want. But it was part of, it was very important to us to sort of know all the different ways that you could tell it right. So you're doing uh, also, but you mentioned you're doing improvisational things. Blocking. But that's in the blocking. But that's been done. Is it now, is it now as set as no. it was, or does it continue to change? It continues. To, it's pretty open. Yeah. We've never... Yeah, it's open. And so you feel a certain... It, it, it has to do simply with, with how it's going. Well, it does, because I, I think with this play, I don't know, this not, not gone too much about the real thing, because it's boring, but I, um, the... No, it's not. It's, it's, okay, all right. Well, the central <laughs> relationship is, uh, if you don't have that central relationship in the play between these two people, then it all sort of, you know, right. everybody falls down, basically. Um, and so it does, it is something that sort of has to kind of happen. Because improvisation is the one word that, that scares playwrights to death, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Although, well, I, we're I, not improvising, stop It's more blocking than in, than in, than in words. I, yeah. I thought for a long and time about putting together a little slim volume, and, and maybe we could start it right here, of, of instruction for actors, because there were things that they didn't teach me at drama school, and, and there were things that nobody said to me. I had to find them out by, try, well, by watching other actors and, and drawing my own conclusions. And I think many of these are very simple. Maybe it would only be a three-page volume. I think but, not. I think it would be a lot, I, quite a I, I've thought of approaching book. actors to give me some of their... T I mean, for instance, one of them that I firmly believe in is never touching the furniture when you're on stage, ever. Unless, unless you actually have an action which is something to do with furniture. But never touch it, because touching the furniture is weak and weakens one. Uh, never point on stage, either. Unless, again, you have to say, no, not you, you, for example. Pointing is also very weak. Everybody on the platform, especially Tony, is looking at me driving on stage. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of all the moments in my show where I'm pointing. We're going to go to tonight. Right? All the furniture. I touch all night long. All the furniture touches. God, I thought this was such wisdom. It might be wisdom. It might be something that you found something quite revolutionary. What's number three? I absolutely swear by... It, and I couldn't do this for years and years, letting, and you do it wonderfully in your play. She is terrifically still for huge sections of her play. Is just letting your arms hang by your sides and doing mm. nothing with them is the strongest and most potent thing that an actor can do, and young actors especially <coughs> tend not to know that. They over-gesture and overwork their arms, but stillness is so powerful on stage. So I like call it putting your arms on mute. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You, know, yeah, so you sometimes hard. feel silly yeah. standing there. Don't I? I don't know. I sometimes think, oh no, I've got to do something. Surely I've got to do something. But you're it's a ridiculous. Great and then I think, no, no, you don't, because if you do something, you'll look even sillier. So just stand here, <laughs> right. maybe nobody will notice well, you. You know, writers, writers see, uh, uh, actors in a way as people who, when you give them their sides, they use the yellow marker and do their lines, and then the other person's lines sometimes come as a surprise. Early on in the production, comes, oh, really? What's going on while I'm doing that, you know? And, and so forth. And so it's, it's, what you say is very interesting because it's hard, especially when you are a person of, of uh, obviously you must be a person of ego to do this kind of work, to, to imagine that when somebody else is talking, nobody's really looking at you in a sense, you know? You're out of the... You're out of the 
uh, the focus a bit, although not so that you can scratch in bad places, but the, but the, <laughs> but, but, but you, that listening thing to contribute to the focusing the audience on the person speaking is is. It also has a terrific dynamic. I mean, I actually also remember Cherry in in, in Eris. You did a lot of listening, and you were also incredibly still for for much of that. That kind of concentrated listening has a terrific dynamic about it. It's very potent on stage. No, I cut you off. You no, 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 it's all right. It, what it does, too, is that we're, we're listening to you speak now, and so it also directs the focus right. to what right. the story that's being told right. is. And that's the job of the actor as well, to you know, help you know, focus the story as it's being told. Uh, but I was thinking back to your original question. I, I thought about this a lot, too. And I think you know, if you look back at the 20th century, the history of the American acting technique, um, well, there really wasn't any uh, up until about the 1950s. Um, for, so let's say from 1900, coming out of the 19th century, acting American acting tradition, which is essentially Shakespearean, from John Wilkes Booth and Edwin Booth and Edwin Forrest and those guys, they were basically guys who studied in the great Shakespearean English tradition. And we basically had the English tradition here in America in the theater, uh, through the group theater, um, back probably to the 40s and the 50s. With the group theater and with Clifford Odets, there started to become this new uh, exploration, even in the late 30s, of naturalism. And uh, the concept that, you know, you didn't have to be a king to, ha to have your story told. You could be a guy who works in a kitchen. Um, and so people started behaving different ways. Instead of uh, sitting regally, you know, you could pick your nose, you could chew gum, you could smoke cigarettes, you could have holes in the soles of your feet, and there was a kind of real person that was on stage for the first time. And then that, that kind of exploration of work started to become, you had to teach a bunch of actors then how to act that way, because everybody thought that speaking with a British accent, you know, and being royal and whatever, was the right way to do it. But suddenly there are guys from the Bronx who were on stage, writers who were writing characters in the Bronx, and it was okay to be an actor from the Bronx. As a matter of fact, it was better than an actor who spoke with perfect diction. And so the, the American techniques of the, the Stanislavski techniques that in, incorporated that into Strasbourg's work and uh, Meisner and uh, you know, all the other guys who were exploring a kind of nat American naturalism became embodied in what we call the method. And then there was an exploration in the method. But now I think that what's happened at the end of the 20th century, in the beginning of the 21st century, is that what we have is a synthesis of the two things. We have the English technique, which I think, I remember when I was in drama school, was uh, summarized as working from the outside in. I remember with Olivier and those guys who we were studying, they, they would build a nose, they would build an ear, they'd build a character, they'd have a speech, or they'd have a limp, or they'd have a hump. And from that would come a character. And, then, and so there was an outside sort of mask that was put on, and then the internal character started to emerge. And then for the American technique, it was working from the ins inside out. What were your emotions? How do you relate to the play? And what kind of uh, memories and things can you bring to this character that brings it alive? And now at the end, I think all of us would probably, I don't know, I, I would think that we would all agree that we, both, we work both from the inside out and the outside in, depending on the kind of character. And maybe with every character, you use a little bit of both. I know that when I'm on stage right now, uh, and this character, if you ask me how he brought it, brought it to life, it's the play's the thing, definitely. I read that character. I read the play over and over. Every night before I go on stage, I'm looking at the lines. I'm discovering something new. Um, and I discover that, but that by doing it organically, by reading it and then rehearsing it and then slowly doing it uh, in a course of rehearsals and performance, things start to happen to you from the inside out. Uh, I knew from the outside in that the guy wore a certain kind of boots and he wore a certain kind of clothes. That makes me behave a certain kind of way. 
but I also know that inside out, I find myself doing gestures that I've never done in life. It's not quite pointing, but at one point I say to the guy, you can either sit or go. Now, I never do this in my life. <laughs> what kind of a gesture is that? Go, you know, it's like go. But I find my character does that twice in the play, and I've kept that character. I've decided that that's a character gesture. That's what my character does. It's different from what John Shea would ever do in real life, but for some reason, I, you know what I'm saying? So by doing the play, the character makes you do things. And you discover this, and then you decide what to keep. I think you can go as good. Pointing, however, it's not. <laughs> 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 you. I also, I was really intrigued by that you're talking about listening and people being really good listeners on stage, because I really believe that that is, if in my little instructional book of acting, that that's the number one thing you do. And that if you have a really fine actor that you're working with, they give you your performance. I also think because it's the if you listen to, to them and respond to them and they're good and you just behave, it's, you don't have to work. And that's, to me, why a playwright gets a different performance because every night that wonderful person you're working off of is different and your response to them is different. So it's, it's an improvisation in the moment with the same material. And I, th I think, uh, just to reiterate, I think that <clears throat> it, to, to listen it really is one of the most important, if not the most important things to do. And I find, for me, the most difficult thing to do is to, because are you listening or are you acting like you're listening? And I think it's, it's very clear the, the distinction between the two and to actually listen to what the other person is saying and not be thinking about my line and what my response is going to be and not be, you know, I find that sometimes I'm trying to listen but at the same time I'm saying their lines in my head because I know them so well. I've heard them every night. I've heard them many times a week. So I, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge to still try and listen to what they're saying as opposed to saying the words in your head and then respond to that. So it's that distinction between listening and acting like you're listening. And listening yeah. is the character and not the actor. Right, that too. Mostly, yeah. There's got to be that little tiny percentage of the actor at work too, otherwise disasters would happen. <laughs> right. the, before we, we were sitting talking and, and uh, Patrick and Jerry were talking about being disconnected. Suddenly something happening in the audience that disconnected you momentarily from what you were doing. and and. How did you get back into it, and what do you mean by Call it this the cell phone moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about a program suddenly. That oh, a woman placed a, a program in the oh, middle of the second act of A Moon for the Misbegotten right there. <laughs> <laughs> and we had to, uh, and Gabriel Byrne, uh, is in my arms on the floor about two feet from that program and I spent a great deal of the second act that night trying to figure out how I could politely go and kick it right <laughs> into the front row and I, and, 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 I, and I actually finally positioned myself where I could I had my foot almost on it and I thought one this is going to be more distracting than the program is but it'll be out of the way but it'll be more distracting. And two, I might, you know, with a major paper cut, decapitate the poor lady who put it there, and I don't want to do that, you know. So I chickened out, and I didn't do it, and then I had to just forget about it and That's concentrate. I, and saw, I, I saw the, uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne one night, the cell phone moment got to him, and he finally was in his ultimate, penultimate scene, and he just finally broke. And has any of you ever broken and 
and, and turn to the audience. Yeah. And, and yeah. what? I'd love so to hear that. Three or four times, and it's, it's always been a mistake, and I've always regretted it. I have yelled at audiences. <laughs> Sometimes they deserve it. Yeah, well, yeah, they must. They I, must. I, Otherwise, I, you wouldn't do it. I, 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 what um, did you yell? I, I told him to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> it was That's at the Barbican. It was at Jennifer the Barbican in Henry IV, and I, I began. Uh, Henry IV begins so, so, whatever, so one with care. The opening speech, and and the audience just weren't ready for the play to begin. They were still having conversations. So I said, shut up at them. Shut up, shut up, shut up! They <laughs> <laughs> said, I'm going to start again. And I went back to the speech again, and it was a disaster. And, and um, I also once in, a, in the small theater, like the Donmar, a girl was taking notes on a front row. She had a huge notebook and one of those jumbo pencils, you know? This was doing <laughs> The Merchant of Venice, and, and, I, and she was in my eyeline in the trial scene, so I went over and I snatched this thing out of her hand and I broke the pencil, and, I said, and it wrecked the evening. Well, it might. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Add this to my little, uh, my little, little book, book of instructions. <laughs> Don't shout at the audience. <laughs> That's number three. Jennifer, you <laughs> interfere with them again. <laughs> Jennifer, you nodded when you gave up. What did you do? Oh, just the cell phone thing. Of, um, <clears throat> just there was a night or two nights, I think, maybe at the Albury in London when uh, a cell phone would go off and. Each time I thought it was just me that looked, then I'd realise later that Stephen and I would actually look at exactly the same, the same moment um, because it, it is there are times when you there is no reason to there was no reason to go on it was a, both times it was at a moment in the play where there is everybody is aware of the cell phone and you can't you can't but it's never you just sort of wait for it to come back it also had been broken down very early at the Aubrey because we had the audience shout on the first night that they couldn't hear one of the actors and um, so the audience had called up speak up we can't hear you and had got a round of applause because we'd come from this little 250-seat theatre and wow. we sort of were hoping we were going to buy ourselves a couple of weeks to gradually expand and on the first preview <laughs> we got this. And so then there was sort of, for the next couple of weeks, it did feel like there was that, that wall, was, that membrane was... None of you has ever just inadvertently yelled out Gesundheit or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this, what we're talking about, is a really important thing because <clears throat> what we try to do on stage is... Uh, is create a, a, a cocoon of concentration uh, that kind of is woven, then uh, weaves a spell over the whole audience. And that if we're really focused on each other and we're listening, you, you know how that feeling in a theater where you can hear the pin drop and everybody's in that world and it's, the story's being told and there's some magic, this energy that is communicated between us. And if something shatters it, like a phone going off or something, or that program or whatever, what it does is like somebody has taken a dagger and he's gone right into that cocoon and he's torn it and it's an act of violence. And what happened to me, I was on stage the other night doing this and working with a great actress named Tanya Lawrence, and uh, Tasha Lawrence, I'm sorry. And as Tasha and I were standing there, there was uh, somebody spoke in the theater, a woman rustling in something in her bag. And, I, and suddenly the cocoon was broken for a moment and the magic was gone. And I stood on stage with her and I thought, I'm naked here on stage. We're, we're in a tacky little theater, you know, like under a church, telling this, you know, you know, story that was only being kept alive by our kind of will and spirit and blood and that the, this is a set and I'm in a costume and why was I born and why am I not, you know? <laughs> it's like, 
this kind of awful existential moment where I felt completely vulnerable and completely naked. And for a moment, uh, like O'Neill has that, you know, for a moment, you know, the curtain is drawn back and you see, and it's like you saw the, 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 the falseness of the theater, you know. And the fact that we're, we're all just up there telling, weaving this fantastic lie. And, and then suddenly I thought, what, how do you get back? And it was what, exactly what Tanya said, which is uh, go back into the other person's eyes. And I lost myself in Tasha's eyes and listened to what she had to say. And suddenly it sealed itself again magically. And we were back on stage and back in the play. But it's a dangerous moment. Could I get back to the nitty gritty we've had? So many questions that want to be asked by the audience that we can't possibly get them all in. But one of the most important ones is, how did you get an agent? Mm. You started from the very beginning, and how did you get your agent? Can we go around quickly before? We um, she saw me in a show at drama school. Was it? That's, I didn't have one for years. I worked in provincial rep, and you don't need agents there. Uh, I guess I've been an actor for about seven years before I got an agent. And, and I've had lots since then, although I've got a steady now. I've had a steady for 13 or 14 years. Okay. Uh, I, I was at uh, Carnegie Mellon, and they had a summer equity program, and I got to work with the equity actors, and an, an agent of one of the equity actors came and saw the show and, and told me that when I came to New York, he would be interested in... I lost an election bet. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I worked on stage in New York. My very first play was called Yentl, Isaac Bersheva Singer play, and uh, agents came to see the play. And uh, I was asked to sign, and I did. Um, I think I've, I've been fortunate that I've been seen in things, and people have um, seen me, but I think if you don't have work that they can see you do or you're not coming out of a drama program, the best way is always for someone you know to make that introduction. Um, my agent saw me in a, in a preview of Rent at the New York Theatre Workshop. So the answer really is that you have to be seen. And so you have yeah. to work. Unfortunately. It's a, it's a, a double-edged sword. Yeah. It's the catch-22 in the theater. There's you can't so much be seen more. without an agent, and you can't get an agent to be seen. Yeah. And, and, and we don't have an agent, but we do have to close this seminar. Oh. And it's gone so fast, I can't tell you. I can't believe that it's the time for me to say, this is the American Theatre Wing Seminar on Working in the Theatre, and it's coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this performance seminar has been simply wonderful. I can't tell you how much has come out of it and how much I've enjoyed and I've listened to every word that you've said. <laughs> I've not pointed a finger once. <laughs> Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Peter.